you're going to start to see more and more low-code applications being used in core functions, direct-to-client functions, all of those capabilities. The business is demanding it, and these tools, they work. It's really becoming uh, harder and harder to justify why you would spend the greater amount on the other tech. There's no bigger buzzword in technology than the term digital transformation. Stressed with the burden of fading legacy technologies, for years, companies have viewed the process of upgrading their technology stack as a luxury rather than a necessity. Now, as more employees abide by work-from-home orders, that directive has shifted, and those transformations are at the forefront of company needs. Christopher Rigg is the COO of EKI Digital, a company with the mission of simplifying the daunting task of upgrading technology stacks through quantitative analysis. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Christopher discusses the growing need for putting the employee experience first, the war to accumulate and retain talent, and why low-code offerings are helping organizations around the world operate efficiently. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome, everyone. My name is Albert, host of IT Visionaries, and joining us today is Chris Rigg, Managing Principal and COO of EKI Digital. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. All right, let's start it right off. What is EKI Digital? EKI Digital is interesting. It's actually been around for a fairly long time. We were founded in 1998. Um, It was originally called EKI, and EKI stands for Electronic Knowledge Interchange, which clearly was a name uh, designed before the idea of a URL was going to be something that was important. So uh, it got abbreviated to EKI and then um, moved to EKI Digital, I think around 10 years ago. But what we really do, we, we try to help clients use technology to drive their business more effectively. And one of the things we try to do a lot of is use what we call quantitative techniques. Our founder, Robert Blackwell Jr., used to be a trader. He's really into quantitative mathematics. And so we try to use quantitative techniques as much as we can to help clients make better investment decisions when they're choosing to do a digital transformation program. One of the things that we see is obviously all clients are moving towards some digital direction. They're making investments in capabilities. And oftentimes you'll see that the return they get on those investments isn't anywhere near as good as the return they might get on other investments. And oftentimes that's because the techniques they're using to evaluate those investments isn't as strong as what they would do if they were going to buy a new building, buy another company. You know, they have financial analysts that go very deep into the analysis around those businesses, but oftentimes they'll spend $10, $20 million on a new piece of technology without that same level of expectation. And that's oftentimes why you're seeing a lot of companies not getting anywhere near as much return on their digital investments. And that's really frustrates business executives. So I want to dive into something you just mentioned before. You say you approach it from a quantitative measurement style. Now, you'll hear people say all the time that they're data-driven, that they let the data tell them and make decisions. In your words, what exactly is the difference between quantitative measurement versus just, I guess, what I think of as statistics or analysis or 
just metrics driven or being data driven? I think a lot of organizations, when they say they're data driven, they're often meaning that they're they're using things like customer data or experience data to make decisions, right? In terms of how do I drive a better experience for the client? How do I how do I use this data more effectively? I think what we're talking about is really when you're thinking about making an investment in your digital platform, you have to use hard numbers to decide, well, how much am I going to spend? What is the expectation I'm going to get in return? If I spend $10 million on a technical platform, when am I going to get a return? How soon? What rate? And how does it feed into the other quantitative metrics that I'm using to measure my business, right? How much revenues are going to drive or how much cost is going to reduce? Oftentimes, I think clients make investments in digital because they feel like it's something they have to do or they're maybe seeing their competitors do, but they aren't really doing it in a way that is truly quantitative in their analysis. Do you have any anecdotal stories or anything like that that can demonstrate how this played out and how what the material difference was by using this measurement model versus maybe a more traditional or non-existent model as you discussed? One of the things that, so we, we worked with um, Cook County, for example, which is the county that the city of Chicago is in, and they had a huge political problem, which was that they, they knew they either needed to raise taxes or figure out a way to cut spending and a way to cut spending without, without reducing services, right? If you're a politician, you don't want to do either of those. You know, if you raise taxes, you're not going to get reelected. And if you cut services, you're probably not going to get reelected. So what we were able to do is really do a quantitative analysis of all the flow of funds through the county. And really, we identified something like $3 billion worth of savings over a four-year period that would basically reduce their operating run rate without reducing their services and not have them require them to raise taxes. So it was really a you know, basically by following the money, for lack of a better word, as it flowed through the organization. What are their sources of revenue? What are their uses of revenue? What are the overlaps? Where's the redundancy? And it was really through quantitative analysis, you find that that oftentimes companies or organizations have redundant stakeholders, right? They're serving the same stakeholder through different areas of the organization. They don't really know that. And uh, they're not really as aware of each other. So they're often double spending, triple spending, one of the things that we like to use is the concept of lean principles. So when you think about you know, lean as a concept, which has been around for many years, has been applied to all aspects of businesses, but often not technology. You'll see a lot of big companies overspend and duplicative spend in technology. And that's one of the core things that we try to get people to recognize and understand. Yeah, well, I've been a leader of different tech companies, and I know that the proliferation of software is, is a real thing. And uh, you're absolutely right. The same company will have like the same tool or 20 versions of like the same tool in their same industry installed at some point to your point of that double stepping. I do have a question to ask you about your quant models because this is fascinating to me. You mentioned before you evaluate technology, but one of the things that we see in technology innovation is that the future use cases and the market capabilities are often unknown. So how do you predict, I guess, you know, if you, you made a mention of like, if you buy a piece of real estate, I think there's enough history of real estate to know how fast it appreciates, how fast it depreciates, what kind of expected costs are going to be associated with the real estate investment given its use, right? Is it a retail footprint? It's a warehouse. Right. But technology is pretty different, right? In that it can be purchased for a use case that it will actually expand and evolve. You also have the existing incumbent service providers. They're constantly shipping improvements to the product. So the product can materially change over the course of three years as well. So I'm curious. How do you do that? Like you mentioned like a three-year horizon in, in tech, a three-year horizon is actually quite large, right? The, the product that you install today 
just by service upgrades alone or by the evolution of SaaS alone, that product could be materially different in three years than it is today to begin with. And so can the market demands the needs and requirements for the solution to begin with. So how do you kind of balance those factors? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, right? Because, and I think part of that is why companies are, I think, reluctant sometimes to do some hard metrics when they're making investment in technology. I mean, if you just look at what happened in, you know, during COVID, where they're saying that what uh, e-commerce as a percent of retail sales was growing at what, about 1% a year. Yeah, and it spiked. And then it grew by 10% <laughs> yeah. in one month, right? So I don't think anybody had a, had a financial model that could have predicted that, right? When you're making investments in digital technology, and there's obviously a certain amount of uncertainty about how the feature set of this particular platform is going to change, how that's going to drive capability in the marketplace and how that's going to change, maybe the results you're going to achieve. And there is a certain amount of uncertainty there and a rapid pace of development you're certainly seeing in the digital capability space. And so part of what we like to do is, one, make sure that you're looking at your past investments more effectively so that you're not redundant investing, over-investing in, in legacy technologies so that you can free up more capital to invest in newer technologies. And that gives you, so when you think about your overall budget, if you can more effectively reduce the spend on legacy tech, then you can make more tech available for uh, new investments that are more speculative or that will produce a better return. Gotcha. And when you go into these organizations and you make these recommendations, I guess, who are you giving these recommendations to and what is their initial reaction? I mean, I'm curious to it because you're right. The investment, you typically, if they're calling you, and this is the way I think of it, right? If they're calling EKI to come in and evaluate this, they're, it's already a substantial investment. So now they're trying to de-risk their investment or you know, right risk it. I don't know the best way to describe it. They know they need to do something. Something will be done. Now it's trying to figure out how much value it creates. Right. Do you get a lot of pushback? Like when people hear your advice or they, do they get pushed up or are they generally really well receiving and like accepting of what you're telling them? Because your models, the way you do things is obviously different than what we've heard in the past from different guests on this show. Yeah. I, I think there's a couple of things to that. And, you know, prior to, I, I've spent about half of my life in the consulting space and then half my life uh, as a corporate executive. So when I, like I was at Bank of America, I managed a really big tech team, had about 1,500 people, 200 applications. And in that space, I would always get consultants coming to me with the kind of what I would call the application rationalization play, <laughs> which is, you know, we can come in, we can analyze your applications, we can take, you know, and cut your spend by X dollars. And you're always skeptical of that because oftentimes, you know that applications are used and run by the business and getting the business to stop using an application or invest time to migrate functionality over to something different, but isn't new or isn't giving them any more capability is often very suspect. So I think a lot of times the answer we get, and it really depends on who you're talking to, but I think a lot of times when we talk to technology executives, the initial reaction we get is a fair amount of skepticism. And I would say that skepticism is healthy because they do, they understand the challenge of trying to consolidate, rationalize, use more lean principles. So I think CFOs, COOs, they understand it, they get it, and they're often very frustrated by the technology partners because they view them as expenses that aren't necessarily producing the result that they want. But I know that CIOs, CTOs, they're often very skeptical. So a big part of what we try to do is we have to win those folks over by not only showing them that our analysis is good, 
that the opportunities are indeed there coming out of our models, but that we have strategies and techniques that can help them actually achieve them. Because you know anybody can take a spreadsheet and show you, you know, if I cut my spending by half, then I've got a lot of money. The question is, can you really achieve that? Can you go down an investment plan that has the discipline? So everything you're talking about, super fascinating. One of the things, now I'm going to age you a little bit. You kind of mentioned your breadth of career. I was curious, are you starting to see a difference in the attitude and general, um, I guess, general opinion on technology with CIOs? Like as new CIOs and new CTOs emerge, you mentioned before they have a nice, healthy level of skepticism. Do you see that increasing, decreasing? Are you noticing any type of change? Do people seem more knowledgeable on these types of investments? Or are they still uh, you know, relying on your expertise? I'm curious if you've noticed like an evolutionary change of the, of the role. Yeah, I, I think it depends on the industry, right? I mean, I think there's, there's an evolutionary change going on, but I think different industries are, it's going on at different paces or different industries are in different places. So I've spent a lot of my time in the financial services industry. And I would say most of the large financial services players, the big banks are really very far out front in trying to what I call adopting kind of the Google mindset, which means is they've tried to upgrade their team skills, build uh, professional engineering capability, hire folks from Silicon Valley, really try to be you know almost like a hardcore engineering capability. They viewed that as a necessary component to be competitive. Um, I think other industries aren't there yet. They're still still trying to catch up and understand that. But I also think that, in you know, you mentioned early on around low code. I think that they oftentimes that overinvestment in engineering capability can be a challenge for other industries other than technology because it's hard to compete for talent in the market. Right, the best engineers want to work for Google. They want to work for Apple. They want to work for the Silicon Valley companies. So if you're a bank, even a bank is really successful as say like a JP Morgan or a Goldman Sachs, oftentimes they struggle to compete to get the really good talent. So CIOs, I think in those organizations have to be considerate of, is it more about engineering or is it more around delivery results? And should I be looking at technologies like low code, other things that are more efficient, but maybe not viewed as, as elegant from an engineering perspective. But at the end of the day, the business really cares about the capability they get, how quickly they can get it, and how how much they have to pay for it. Yeah, there you go. And that opens up a new door, right? So you kind of talked about this evolutionary look at what people are going to do. Uh, in, in the past, we've classified that as the employee experience, which is what is it that we can provide? You mentioned like if you're Deloitte, what can you provide to lure the tech talent away from or prevent them from going to, you know, let's say the Valley? One of the things you mentioned just a moment ago is the low code movement. So for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar, what exactly is low code? Yeah. So I think the definition of low code is, um, is evolving, but generally it means a platform-based technology that you can use to deliver functionality and you do very little coding on it. So the easy examples are things like Microsoft's Power Platform. So Dynamics 365 plus Power Apps, or Salesforce's, Force.com, all of those uh, capabilities. Um, and then there's, if you Google it or look into the industry, that there are hundreds of low-code providers like OutSystems and Mendix, et cetera. But there's, there's a ton of companies that provide. So it's basically a cloud-based development platform that you're interacting either with a visual development environment or a pseudo-code, something that's 
a lot less engineering required to take functional requirements and turn them into a working application. So I'll just going to put in my interpretation of it. It's a visualizer, like a, almost like a, the process flow maps where you can take drag objects. It'll remember its existing connecting points. Exactly. And those connecting points, instead of fictitious lines, that's the actual data flow. Like data is flowing from this field to this application into this field in this application. You drag it to a new one and that actually would change the program for the listeners out there that aren't familiar. The first time I saw this though, I just, I'm going to date myself too. I'm four years old. In 2004 or 2005, I saw this being used inside of Oracle systems where they were dragging and dropping things to like, I guess, flow map information. Why do you think it's taking so long for this? Because it sounds like there's a now more, a bigger proliferation. But I feel like I saw this, you know, almost 15, 20 years ago. What do you think has happened? I mean, besides technological improvements, what do you think has happened culturally or maybe it's educationally that is causing maybe a proliferation of low-code applications? Yeah, I, I think it, it comes down to a couple of different trends, right, that are kind of all converging at the same time. The first one that you mentioned is technology. The technology has gotten better. Right. So low-code in a cloud-based platform is much more capable than low-code uh, from 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And, you know, I grew up as a programmer and I remember really old application environments, visual development tools like Power Builder or even Lotus Notes. And oftentimes, if you built a really big application in those tools, you ran into an issue, a performance problem. You had to break out of the framework and write some code. And that became very difficult to maintain. So oftentimes, I think people just didn't believe that the low code environment could get them all the way through to the end and deliver an application that was had a good quality interface, was easy to use, had all the features that you expect, you know, from a development perspective. But with the advent of cloud technology and just the, you know, the basically amount of processing power, storage, network bandwidth, or whatever you have available to you, these tools have gotten a lot better. I think the second trend that you're seeing is this, the business is demanding digital capabilities at a pace that is very difficult for technology to keep up with. So they're just, you know, CIOs, technology managers, anyone who's in the business of delivering capability to the business, they're sitting there going, I've got this backlog and I'm never going to get through that backlog of changes unless I do something more efficient and low code affords that opportunity. And then I think the third area is kind of what I mentioned earlier is there is a war for talent and you're not always going to get the best engineers on your team. Low code allows you to have people that are better understanding of the business. You still need to be a good programmer, I believe, or at least to have a good understanding of application development and the core principles, but you don't have to be that kind of Google level engineer to write a good application in a low code tool. So do you have any use cases where that is actually in play? Because when I think of this, you know, when I think of what you're talking about, and I think about when developers get involved in solving applications or configuring, a lot of it's in configurations as well, right? When you're configuring how an application data is going to flow, typically, like I would not assume that a visualizer could do it. You know what I mean? Like that's, I think that's where my lack of experience in these products is, is right now. Because you know, I'm reading your article on LinkedIn about how the lack of engineering talent and increase in digital demand is going to change well, the way businesses think about these tools. So how advanced are they now? Like, what, Do you have any stories of maybe someone who not as experienced is absolutely is able to solve a problem that a more experienced person was required previously thanks to a low-code product? Yeah, I think there, there are a number of, of good stories and there are some that are out there in the public domain, but there's a, a low-code provider 
called OutSystems. They're actually based in Europe. I think they're based in Portugal. But one of the banks in Europe needed to build uh, an e-commerce interface. So kind of for their commercial banking, corporate banking, they needed to basically build a new commercial banking portal, direct-to-customer portal. And the CIO did an analysis of what it would take to use kind of open stack, full stack development, Java, you know, the typical approach that they would have done. And it just was going to take too long. The business needed a much tighter deadline. So they chose to use a platform called OutSystems, which is based in Portugal. It's a low-code platform, cloud-based, runs on top of Microsoft technology. And they were basically able to get an application out the door in something like 90 days. <laughs> and everyone was happy. It's a great application. You know, the business was happy. They were basically able to do something much faster than anything. And you're seeing in the U.S., um, there's a company called Uncork. Uncork uh, is funded by Goldman and a couple other VC firms, but there's a couple of guys that were part of Goldman. They left, they founded Uncork, and Uncork is basically taking the low-code platform concept and extending it a little bit. So you think about it like Microsoft has a, let's call it a generic low-code platform. What Uncork does is they've built a low-code platform just for financial services. So they've got insurance components and they're adding you know, banking and other components. So those you can actually build a functional application for a particular functional area in a really short period of time. And they're seeing tremendous results in that. And there's another company in London named Genesis that's doing basically the same thing for the capital market space. So if you're a hedge fund or a small broker dealer and you need to build a trade settlement platform or an FX trading platform, they've got these components already up and running. They've already got connectors into the market data sources. So you really are piecing together like Lego blocks, a really highly functional, really easy to use, really powerful application in a very short period of time. So I got to ask you a question. These applications that are being built with these low code tools, are they like, are they like MVP products or are they actually consumer facing, shippable, like millions of concurrent users products? I'm trying to give our audience a scope of like what these things are capable of. Because I think maybe a developer that's not as accepting of these products would say, no, it still needs like customizations afterward, that it doesn't actually have a fully functioning shippable product. It's just an MVP. It's just something for someone to utilize and prove a test case. It's not a you know production grade. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great question because I think that is often the story that I think you'll hear a lot of professional developers take, which is like, these are good prototyping tools, Yeah. right? I can create a highly functional prototype in a very short period of time, put it in front of the business everyone's happy, but then I still got to break out and hire a bunch of engineers and build the Java code and all of the frameworks to get that done. But no, these applications can run with thousands, if not millions of concurrent users. You have the ability to make pixel perfect screens. So you're not stuck in some kind of a framework. (laughs) You know, when you, when you think about, you know, Microsoft's, you know, their, their platform, they have, thousands and thousands of apps that are being built every day on these platforms and they're able to run. So it really is that cloud scalability offers that ability to to really extend these applications to a much larger audience than you would otherwise. Yeah, because I, I do think that that's, that's one of the common, I think, misconceptions. It's probably not a misconception. I think it's just, like I said, it, it's a healthy skepticism from having been in the industry for a long time you say, well, these are good prototyping tools, or maybe these are good for internal work group applications, but I really wouldn't use it for something serious. And that's where I think it's going, is you're going to start to see more and more low-code applications being used in core functions, direct-to-client functions, all of those capabilities. Because like you said, the business is demanding it, and these tools 
they work. So, you know, it's really becoming harder and harder to justify why you would spend the greater amount on the other tech. Yeah. You're seeing, uh, I think enough people in the industry or have developed products have been just burned, right? Where they've invested, let's say in, I would call them like kit tools, right? Tools that supposedly have kit components that let you put together any type of product that you're supposed to use. I mean, I remember when mobile apps, when iOS, Android were first blowing up, like there was all these kit tools that were like, oh, make your own iOS app with just this kit. Right. And you could drag and drop and stuff. It's like, it could do some things, but of course it couldn't do everything. I think people still have that mentality. So it's interesting to hear your perspective on seeing actual production grade, consumer grade, millions of concurrent users products that are, uh, and it sounds like there's a lot of customization capability in there. So, because you kind of mentioned it, that it might be low code, but it doesn't mean no code. It, you still have the opportunity to make like, a, you know, and customize and upgrades or changes to what you need. Yeah. In the visual development environments that you're operating in are very sophisticated. So you can, you can paint the screen, you can create very sophisticated interaction models. You can do all of that. And again, with very, very little coding. So, you know, it's just, it's much more efficient, but you do have control over the entire end-to-end experience. So I'm curious about your own, what you've experienced in, like you mentioned before, the war on talent, because, you know, it sounds like EKI, you're always pushing, you guys are pushing the forefront of technology, you're using quantitative measurement methods, you're using low code. What about for you to get talent? What have you noticed in the modern worker? What are some of the things that you're noticing? And if you don't want to give away secrets, I understand, because of course there is a war for talent, but I'd love to hear your perspective on how the modern worker in this industry is changing, how you attract people that meet what you need, just all the stories around recruiting, because this is something that everyone has a challenge with. Yeah, I think it's a great question. And a couple of things, you know, I, I learned a, an interesting lesson when I was at, when I was at Bank of America, we had developed this recruiting program and I volunteered to be the recruiter for, I think, University of Michigan and a couple other places. And I remember when I first went and I sat down at the Bank of America table on kind of the career day and, uh, you know, I'm there in my little polo shirt and I got, uh, you know, some tchotchkes that have Bank of America logo on it. And then next to me, and I might get one guy every 20 minutes and then next to me, there's Google and they got a line out the door, right? I'm <laughs> what are these guys like giving away handles of vodka or something. I mean, there's got to yeah. be a reason why college students are willing to stand in line and it really, you know, I just saw that, that you know, there was that, that appeal. Obviously, they've got the tremendous brand and the, you know, the reputation of being a place where engineers truly wanted to work. So we actually invested a lot of time. We created this thing we called a geeks on the street, which is why would an engineer want to come work for a bank? And we made some changes and we did some things. We changed our messaging. We tried to, you know, listen very hard around what attracted certain employee experiences. Was it the kind of work you did? Was it how much money you made? Was it where you got to live? Was it, uh, you know, the experience? Was it that you got to do cool stuff? What were all of the, that, you know, kind of mix of things that people care about when they're making an employment decision? And then you try to optimize against that. I think what we try to do at EKI Digital, one, we're a small company. And, um, but what we try to do, we, we try to make EKI Digital the kind of place that talented people want to work. And, you know, that's an easy thing to say, but often a diff- difficult thing to do. Part of it is we let people, you know, kind of work from wherever they want. And obviously in this COVID world, that's, you know, everyone's like, oh, yeah, obviously you got to do that. But <laughs> you know, we, we've done that. You know, if somebody wants to live, you know, in California, they want to live in Mexico, we don't care, right? As long as they can get access to the environments, can use the tools, can deliver what we're asking them to do. We don't care about those things. We don't care about, you know, 
a lot of times around the background. So we, we, EKI Digital is an incredibly diverse organization uh, with kind of all walks of life, which is, you know, and, and we take people from at different points in their career path too. So folks that are, uh, you know, maybe later on in their careers, but are looking to do something different, we're, we're welcoming of those, those patterns as well. So, you know, I, I think we just try to make ourselves a place where talented people enjoy the work. They don't get a lot of overhead, a lot of politics, just, you know, it's just a place that talented people can really uh, kind of apply their craft. So you mentioned before that EKI has mostly uh, financial services type customers. Is that right? Well, we, we, we have two. I, I would say we have two primary groups. So one is state and local government. So like, you know, the cities and states and then financial services. Those are really our two biggest businesses. Gotcha. And so the reason why I ask is I wanted to get back to that recruiting mantra, right? So one of the things that we've heard in, is that you have to be supportive of the people that are pushing technology, right? Because it's, it's virtually impossible to push the boundaries of what is possible without making, breaking some, making some mistakes. So I was curious, like, is the, in, do the industries you serve, are they, do they understand that? Or, or do you guys have a way of testing and quality assurance where it's like, okay, you break it, but you break it only on our side? Because, you know, some of the consumer products, as you know, the move fast, break things has maybe been taken a little too much to heart because, yeah. <laughs> because they're constantly shipping stuff that like people report bugs on. Right. right. And they've just, I think a lot of consumer platforms, I think have, I don't know, to call it a tolerance. They just have a tolerance for bugs, right? It's like, okay, if we have this many bugs, but I feel like FINRA would not be that way. They would have a lower tolerance. Right. <laughs> yeah. In, in the financial services space, there certainly is that idea of where, where people would say, you should fail fast. I think if you said that, you know, inside of a, a, a large commercial bank, they would be like, no, we, we want to fail never. We don't want to fail fast. Right. But I do think you're starting to see that, I would say, the attitude changing a little bit because they know they need to be more innovative, right? Everybody wants to be innovative. Innovative is one of those words that there's never a negative connotation to it, right? You ask somebody, do you want to be innovative or do you not want to be innovative? It says, of course, I want to be innovative. So I think they're getting that message that in order to be innovative, they do need to have a little bit more a change to their culture to be more accepting of that type of experimentation. I learned an interesting lesson a few years back. I, I was consulting to PayPal and we were doing an analysis of their client experiences. And we looked at a, basically a spreadsheet of, you know, I said, hey, give me, give me all your experiences. They gave me a spreadsheet, it's 500 of them. <laughs> and I said, all right, let's, let's stack rank them in revenue, right? Put the biggest revenue, the highest revenue experience on the top and the, you know, the bottom revenue experience on the bottom. So out of 500, they probably had 480, 490 that had zero revenue. And what? Yeah, exactly. Wait a second. Wait a second. You're talking, so they're, they're supporting 500 applications, but only 10 to 20 make money. Yes, exactly. And what were the other things for they, Well, they were all ideas that somebody thought was going to make money that got approved through their prioritization investment process. Somebody did the requirements, wrote the code and put it into production. And then it turns out it didn't make them a lot of money or in some cases, maybe didn't make them any money. Wow. And when you talk to them about that, you're like, wow, that, that, that seems crazy, right? And the answer I got back was, yeah, but you got to remember the top 10 produces billions of dollars of revenue, right? Well, that's true too. <laughs> and the top 10 were at the beginning of their life cycle, they were like the other 490. So I, I do think that there is this attitude in the Valley around it's okay to experiment. If it doesn't work, it's not a big deal, right? Because if we keep at it, we keep innovating, one of these things will work. It will make some money. It will be successful. 
And that's how you iterate and learn. And I think that's very difficult for big financial services companies. They would never tolerate that level. But you are seeing, I think, a little bit of a change. When I was at uh, Ernst & Young, I was partner at Ernst & Young for a while. For five years, I led their capital markets technology practice. And I spent a lot of time trying to help fintechs and banks work together. And you know, one of the things you saw there was just this massive dichotomy in how the two organizations worked culturally, right? Where the, the bank could drown the fintech just in cybersecurity paperwork that they needed to <laughs> fill out before they would ever start a project. And I think the banks over time figured out, well, you know, we can't do that. That's not going to do us any good. So they started to do things like create sandboxes internally so they could bring fintechs in and let them have some room to operate and maybe create some lighter weight agreement structure so that they could get started faster and also educate the the fintechs to know that if you are going to tell sell your services into a really big bank, your first conversation shouldn't start with, well, the first thing you guys need to do is just give me all your data, which is often what a fintech will say. And the banks look at them like, how did you get in the building? Right. I mean, that's just, that's just not an acceptable way to operate. So, you know, I think there's room for improvement on the fintech side to recognize what regulated industries need. And there's room for improvement on the bank side to understand how to be more innovative. Do you find that that plays a part in I guess, hindering, I don't know if hindering is the right word, but does it play a part in a person's decision process before they come work for you? Like when they ask you, well, who are your customers? And you say government and banks, like, I don't know. Right. Do you have to explain? To them? Yeah, I, I think that, I think people make that choice based on what we should, when we show them some of the work that we've done, the environment that we have, the people that they're going to work with, I think they, you know, they, they, they get over that, but you know, gotcha. folks that are passionate about you know, consumer products or some of those things, then yeah, then, you know, it probably doesn't make sense for them to come work for us because, you know, we, we try to focus on the industries where we have enough of an understanding that we feel like we can make an impact. No, that makes total sense. I just didn't know if, you know, if someone's, uh, you know, just maybe fresh out of school, what would they think? And for your business, I'm just making assumptions here, but I mean, it sounds like you have to have such a level of domain expertise. Do you typically only hire people that have domain expertise or are you, you guys open to looking for talent outside of, outside of the domain? Yeah, we, we try to do a mix, right? And um, we try to be open. We do hire some, some young folks and bring them on board and you know, try to bring them up to speed. But it does, it does require a fair amount of expertise. I, I think you know, different companies, and I spent a lot of time in that you know, big four at Ernst & Young, and I was at Accenture for a long time too, where you know, we would hire thousands of people every year off campus, send them, you know, to some learning center in the middle of nowhere and beat it into their brains and how to be a consultant, that kind of stuff. Those companies are very good at hiring people right out of school. Because I think when you hire somebody right out of school and that first job, you really got to have the right program. The big companies, you know, like the big four consulting companies or some of the big tech firms, they hire people right out of school. They have really good programs for how to train and educate and mentor those folks you know, uh, we're not set up to do a lot of that. So we're very limited in our hiring, say, of direct off on campus. We prefer them to be a little bit further along, more seasoned by the time they join us. Oh, that makes total sense. You know, one of the things I also want to ask you, because it's very relevant today is, because you're at the forefront of your industry. Like you said, you already had remote at work as part of EKI. I'm curious what you think is going to happen in the next two years in regards to workplace expectations, especially in the tech sectors. So you service government and FINRA. Are there going to be any interesting changes, you think, on the near or short-term horizon of which 
EKI or someone else is going to be asked to do. When I think about like banking right now, like I, I don't know, are people going to return to using physical banks? Are they going to continue to go use physical services? Like when I go pay my bills, uh, am I going to still show up at the offices of you know the Treasury Department to pay bills? I know people still do that. Like, is everything moving digital? I'm just curious what you think is because I feel like remote is permanent. Like people are not coming back. That's my belief. But I don't know what you what you if you have anything on your um in your predictions of what how people are going to behave. If that is the case, or what else? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you might have a totally different prediction. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things there, right? One, um, I think you're right in that. I think the remote work, it's not like we're going to suddenly go back to people sitting in the office right next to each other five days a week. I do think that when it's safe to go back to the office, people will go, but I think they'll go for deliberate reasons, right? To go to group meetings or whatever. And I think that it will change the way offices look and the way companies choose when they when they buy office space, I think they'll probably consume a little bit less. They'll be configured differently. I think when it comes to kind of consumer behavior, I do think that you know when we talked earlier that COVID has been a, a huge accelerant, right? So the digital concept is being adopted everywhere. So are people going to start going back to banks? I don't know. I, you know the number of use cases where it makes sense to walk into a branch is going down and down and it's going down faster than it was before. Because even if you went into a branch today, it would probably not be anywhere near of the experience that it used to be. You probably have to stand six feet away from people, wear a mask, you got some plexiglass screen, they're not going to give you free coffee anymore. Yeah. So, you know, they've kind of degraded the experience. So why would you ever go in there? Right. So it's going to be. Yeah. It used to be to like file for a business, maybe a loan for your small business. But like now I feel like there's going to be more digital applications for that. You know, I'm not going to go talk to an advisor for this. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I mean, now you can, you can buy a car now, right. Over the internet and never, never touch the car, never touch the salesperson or the paperwork until it's yours. Yeah. Right. And you're like, why didn't they do that 10 years ago? Right. Who likes the experience of going in and buying a car? Why didn't they create this entire digital experience? you know, 10 years ago, but it just, it forced it. And I don't think people are going to go back because it's better. Well, I think on the consumer side, right. That people just kind of always wanted to talk to somebody. I mean, I don't know, maybe they felt unconfident filling out paperwork because, you know, a bank application can be unwieldy. Like it's pretty, right. <laughs> it's a little bit much. Well, yeah. Well, and I think that, that that's a great point because I think it has forced the companies then to say, well, why is this application so complicated? Yeah. Why do we have 10 different forms when it seems like 70% of the data I'm entering into these fields feels like it's the same as, you know, as it was in the other forms? Why is that happening? Right. So I think it is forcing people to really look at that experience and make it better. Very good. Okay. Chris, to close the interview, we do have to do our sponsored interview questions. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Customer 360 Platform the number one cloud platform to digital transformation of every experience. Chris, we always use these questions. We want to get to know you and let our audience know you a little bit more. What is, in your opinion, the most addicting app on your phone? Right now, I would say it's, um, it's Twitter. And what reasoning? Probably because of the election. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of news cycle happening on Twitter. Yes, for sure. Exactly. And I feel like it happens so fast. You know, I, I feel like, you know, just... If you're gone for an hour, you, you feel like you, you missed out, right? But it is, it is addicting and I have to learn to put it down. I'm actually with you. I tried taking Twitter off my phone. I was able to take Facebook, Instagram, no problem, but I found that I longed for Twitter and it's, I follow reporters and stuff similar to you. You get 
the news cycle comes much faster. Absolutely. Chris, what is your favorite book or podcast? Uh, let's see. My favorite, uh, my, my favorite podcast right now that I've been listening to a lot lately is Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. I really enjoy that. Books, I, I read probably two or three books a month and I've always got about 10 going in parallel. 10? Yeah. How do you read 10 books at a time? <laughs> well, Kindle, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those people that like finishes their train of thought. Uh, so mainly because I think I naturally already stutter and I always lose focus on things. So I try my best to read a book from end to end. But if you can read and balance 10 concurrent books, I find that that's awesome. And then, you know, one of the things we always want to ask is what's one question you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? Um, I guess that the question that, that I wish clients would ask us, right, as we work with them I wish they would ask us a little bit more around how they could more effectively use some of the capabilities that we offer. I think sometimes we're, we're always challenged to educate our clients on, here's the approaches we have, here's what we bring to the table, and then you kind of lock down on something and then you kind of drive that to the end. We'd love for clients to take a step back and really ask more about, um, you know, what are some of the other areas that we could help them with? Yeah, not a problem. I always find that a lot of times, they, I don't know, for your your field. But I feel like a lot of times customers come in with like a narrow set sometimes, almost too narrow. Like they only want to solve problems X, Y, and Z. When in reality, they need to solve A through Z, you know, and they don't want to talk about any of it. They just want, this is what I have. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think that's because oftentimes clients, when they're engaging an outside provider, you know, when, when they're seeking external advice, oftentimes it's because they've got a problem and that problem has reached a certain scale that they've decided that, you know, we're going to go ahead and and spend externally to try to solve this. And they really want you to spend time on that, which I understand that completely. Very good. And then last but not least, if you weren't in technology, what would you be doing? You know, it's interesting. I, I didn't study computer science originally. So my first time I went to school a uh, hundred years ago, I studied <laughs> economics and political science. And my plan then was to go to law school, probably become like, uh, you know, an operative some, you know, congressional aide or something along those lines, trending towards becoming a politician at some point. That was my original plan. But then my first job while I was in college, I worked for an insurance company and I ended up writing a program to automate my job. And then I kind of, you know, kind of last on the technology thing. But yeah, if I wasn't doing this, I would probably do uh, something in that kind of political realm. All right. Then I got to ask you a political question. And I won't ask you who do you think is going to win the presidency, but I do want to ask you this. Do you think more people will turn out to vote this year than the last election? Yeah, I think that all the indicators suggest that more people have already voted by like a factor of 10 than at this point in 2016. And like yesterday, what the, the voter registration system in Florida crashed because so <laughs> like the last day, so many people were out there trying to, trying to register. So yeah, I think there's going to be, I think you're going to see crazy numbers in terms of the number of people they're going to cast votes. And it'll, it'll be really interesting to see how high it gets. Because I think in the U.S., what, in, the, in a presidential election year, what do we get about 60% of eligible or registered? I read 55. I yeah. said only 55% of eligible voters actually vote. So if you think about it, if you're, if you're a politician, you're like, well, heck, if, I, if 45% of the electorate doesn't even vote, if I could just get 10% of them to come in my direction, right? There's, there's a lot of grabs. Yeah, that might tip it. That would, that would potentially tip it. All right, Florida, you've been warned. Give Chris a call. Your system failed. Exactly. We can fix that registration system. Give us a call. We'll help you. All right, Chris, thank you for joining us on IT Visionaries. We've enjoyed hearing all your stories. 
Any last words of advice for any future up and coming tech leaders? You know, I, I would say, you know, embrace it, embrace the chaos, embrace the change. I think, you know, it, it's never been a more exciting time to be in this business, right? I think, you know, for years, when I first started working in technology, we, they made us sit in the basement, <laughs> right? You know, the tech guys down there, the sweater heads in the computer room. And uh, now, you know, this is our time where we are driving the business. Every company out there is a technology company. So there's never been a better time to be, be in this space and to do this kind of work. There it is. I can't imagine there's a company out there right now that doesn't have a digital experience somewhere. Like it, I think it's pretty much impossible to operate if you, <laughs> that's the way you're going to be. Chris, thanks for joining us on IT Visionaries. We look forward to hearing from you again. Thank you. I really appreciate it. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.